what would it mean for the, the white evangelical church to actually demonstrate the gospel and not just proclaim it? I mean, we got, we got, we got volumes and volumes of books that talk about the proclamation of the gospel. We are taught how to do the four spiritual laws, how to do the bridge illustrations, the Romans way. We've got, we've got chapter after chapter on how to evangelize in words and in proclamation. Uh, most churches right now can do that well, or at least claim to do that well, and have zero going for them when it comes to the demonstration of the gospel. So don't tell me you're going to evangelize to a Muslim in Syria when you told that very person not to come to your country and be your neighbor. So yeah, you can talk all you want about the love of Christ, but if you are not demonstrating the love of Christ, then you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And so what I think is the problem with our evangelism is that it is so devoid of justice that it has actually become a counterproductive witness. Where you sank your seat in ground Beauty I found in her Victory I've seen in cures The texture makes a wondrous Hey everybody, welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. Huge thank you to the Patreon supporters and to those that are emailing the show with feedback at church at gmail.com, interacting with the show on Facebook and Twitter. I very much appreciate every single item of feedback and especially those that have submitted names that you would want to hear. Those are working out quite well and I can't thank you enough. I, I, I found names that I didn't even know existed. Uh, and it is it is a pleasure to increase the the bubble of of knowledge that I'm able to try to try to intake. For those that have not yet pledged that support, please consider going to Patreon.com/slash Can I Say This at Church and a buck a month. For those of you that are supporters on Patreon, thank you so much. I have a few things coming out that I think will help make your patronage a bit more enticing and entertaining. I'd like to do some smaller bits, some miniature versions of the podcast that I think don't fit a full episode, but do work well regardless. And I would love to be able to share those in a way uh, that they would have good engagement. And I think you would enjoy them. The guest today, I was able to speak with Professor Soong Chong Ra, who is from North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. Soong Chong has had many hats in the faith and the church that we all are a part of. What you'll find in today's conversation with Soong Chong is a ease that comes with history. And so what you'll find in today's conversation is is a discussion of lament. Apparently, there is a book called Lamentations in Our Bible, and I am as guilty as anyone else of passing right over that because I don't want to feel sad and I don't want to believe that I'm not doing it perfect, or at least trying to. And so when we look at lament, what does that do to how we view our world? What does that do to how we seek to do justice to our communities and what does that mean for the future of our church and i mean that quite literally you'll hear us reference some articles and some new research that show that the future of the church if we don't learn to do things differently to do things prophetically to do things intentionally that the church is, is is at a tipping point it's on a razor's edge and i firmly believe that and so enough of me let's get into the interview 
Professor Roth, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, I know this has been a long time in the making, and so I'm glad that we finally got it to work out. Thanks. Good to be on here. Yeah. So for those that are unfamiliar with either you, your work, or you know North Park, uh, the institutions you work at, what would you tell people about yourself, kind of your story, what brought you through, what was your journey through life that brought you to do what you're doing now? What influenced you? Sure. I mean, we can go way back to, I, I was born in Korea, and I was born uh, into a family that had actually a pretty long Southern Baptist tradition in Korea. My, I believe it was either my great-grandfather or my great-great-grandfather was one of the first people who helped to found uh, the first Baptist church in, the, in Korea, which was actually in Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. Uh, ironically, much of the Christian movement in Korea actually began in Pyongyang, which is the uh, the North Korean capital. Really? Uh, so I come from a yeah, I come from a Christian family. Actually, a long line of Christian family, a uh, long history of in a Christian family. Uh, we moved to the United States. Um, ended up uh, kind of uh, mainly because of my parents' uh, separation. We ended up living in kind of a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. And one of the things I noticed in that neighborhood was that there was a pretty strong division between. Uh, three different groups, poor blacks, poor whites, and poor recent immigrants. And I often kind of struggled with, well, we're all poor, we have that in common, and yet we really can't get along. Uh, So that's been kind of something that I've been working through um, in my academic work, in my church life, uh, trying to figure out why, uh, when we have more in common that brings us together, in the case of where my neighborhood was when I grew up, uh, poverty, uh, and feeling like oppressed and alienated from the rest of society because of our poverty, uh, and yet, because of racial division, we were not able to get along. We were actually uh, hostile to one another. In fact, in elementary school, we sort of got along. In junior high school, the racial tensions started to flare up. By high school, we had full-blown gangs split along racial lines. Uh, so that's been something that I've been kind of working through. Um, urban ministry has been a key part of my formation and my, my, uh, my work uh, because I grew up in an inner-city neighborhood. Uh, went on to college for uh, for our family. The way out of the hood was actually through education. <laughs> so my uh, my mom really stressed education for us. So I went out and, and just got degree after degree after degree. And that's been where my, my uh, kind of energy has been uh, in so many ways, but also in ministry. I was a pastor for 17 years, a church planner, a senior pastor. Uh, and for the last 11 years now, I've been teaching at North Park Theological Seminary. Uh, in areas of evangelism, justice, urban ministry, cross-cultural ministry, etc. Uh, but most of that is informed by my academic work, but also my time uh, as a pastor. Um, I was a, a church planner, uh, senior pastor of a church plant in the Cambridge-Boston area. Okay. Uh, yeah, but for the last 11 years, I've been focusing more on the academic piece here at North Park Seminary. Yeah. Is that, do you know at all if that church in, in North Korea is still there? I, I, you don't ever hear about Christians in North Korea, at least not in a good way. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Most of the churches, if not all of the churches, had to either go underground or were were destroyed. Uh, what actually happened is that during the war, many of the uh, North Korean Christians fled to the south. Uh, my family and I were just in South Korea in Seoul uh, over the summer, 
And we actually met with a 90-year-old man who was the, uh, is actually kind of a well-known personality in, in Korea. He's a, kind of a public theologian. He comes on TV. He has a PhD from Boston University, taught at Seoul National University. He's in his 90s and now retired, but we got a chance to spend time with him, mainly because my dad was the bus driver uh, or the, uh, the, the jeep driver that uh, helped him flee the border from North Korea to South Korea. Uh, so those narratives are still very much in place. And his, uh, he was, he's a very committed Christian. Yeah. Uh, my dad uh, was part of that church. And like I said, most of that community ended up fleeing to the South and started a very large uh, Baptist church in Seoul. It's called Seoul Baptist Church. I think it's the largest Baptist church in Korea. Really? That's, we don't ever hear that much about that part of the world. That's, well, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. that's, we do a disservice to ourselves, I think, in, in much of the West to, to insulate ourselves from that. So you wrote, not long ago, a book, and, and, and if, if people follow you on either Twitter or Facebook, you speak often to lament and a call yeah. for the church to lament. And I've heard you use the words prophetic lament. I've spoken mm -hmm. with Mark Charles, uh, mm -hmm. who also says that the church needs to enter a season of lament. Mm -hmm. And so what, what does that mean? Yeah, so that's a great question. Actually, Mark and I are currently working on a book. Uh, we've been working on this for a couple of years now. We hope to be done sometime this year. Uh, <laughs> and so Mark's work in the area of the history, uh, especially around Native peoples, and the way that uh, American society and the government has uh, suppressed and oppressed Native communities. And I'm working on the Lament historical theological piece. Um, uh, and I, hopefully this book will be out sometime next year, early next year, and I'm pretty excited about uh, the content that's being pulled together. But I wrote a book called Prophetic Lament uh, a few years ago, and it was a commentary on the book of Lamentations, which, of course, <laughs> was automatically a bestseller because <laughs> right. nobody wants a book on Lamentations. That's one of those books of the Bible that everybody kind of skips over. It's uh, well, it's right it's next to so it's right next to Song of Songs. It's it's right, right there, right. yeah, right with and it. it's and it's like it's about <laughs> as popular as Leviticus. You know, it's like <laughs> you get to Leviticus, you skip that; you get to Lamentations, you skip that. Uh, so it's it's kind of funny that I wrote a book on Lamentations, which uh, you know my wife still jokes five years to write this book, four copies sold is kind of the mantra in our household that uh, this is not a popular book of the Bible. And why is that? It's because lament as a discipline, as a spiritual practice even as a topic or content to engage, is pretty much absent in our, in our church life. So it was sparked by, for example, when I started uh, looking at worship life in the church. And there were a couple of different studies. One study was done by um, an Old Testament professor in the D.C. area, and she was finding that a lament was absent in, in much of the liturgical tradition. And then Glenn Pemberton did a study on hymns and found that in the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, you had such a small percentage of those hymns being lament hymns. Uh, and then I looked at contemporary worship songs and examined why so few uh, of our contemporary worship songs are, are not laments. Uh, lament is 40% of the Old Testament psalms. Uh, mm. which means that the, in the typical worship life of Israel, almost half the time, uh, Israel was practicing lament, was expressing lament. Uh, and lament is a cry out uh, in the face of injustice. Lament is a cry out in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. When things are not going the way they're supposed to go, that's when lament is brought up. Um, and for American Christians, if we don't engage lament, we don't see injustice as well. Uh, if we don't practice lament, uh, we have no outlet for crying out against injustice. Uh, and so that's part of the, the reasons that kind of motivated me to write this book.
uh, in a context and in a social reality that we're in for American Christians of excessive, excessive sense of exceptionalism and triumphalism, uh, the corrective of lament is missing which further exasperates this problem and leads to even greater injustice. So I know Mark speaks to exceptionalism, at least in, in his doctrine of discovery, which I found fascinating, um, infuriating and fascinating, but more, mm. more infuriating than anything. Um, mm-hmm. So what is, what is triumph—I can't say that word—what is triumphalism? <laughs> Triumphalism. Well, exceptionalism and triumphalism are related terms. Exceptionalism is the belief that uh, particularly American Christians are exceptional. Uh, and you see this language in politics a lot. And it actually crosses Democratic-Republican party lines. Both Republicans and Democrats use different language but claim an exceptionalism. Uh, Republicans claim make America great again, meaning there is an exceptionalism that needs to be reclaimed. Uh, most Democrats are saying America is great and it will continue to be great, which is kind of tapping into the narrative of exceptionalism. Uh, this is very problematic for us as Christians because America as a nation before God is not exceptional. Uh, there is no kind of inherent value to the United States of America. Unfortunately, that's a very, very uh, prominent narrative in our in our world right now. And this is part of the, the education that's needed. And as we were talking earlier about the church in Korea, uh, America is not even the largest Christian nation anymore. America is not the most uh, uh, prominent or or dynamic Christian nation. Though those nations are in places like Korea and in Africa uh, and China. China probably at this point has more actual number of Christians than possibly in the United States hmm. because of the huge number of those who are committed and involved in the underground churches, which are harder to track. So what we're talking about is a Christianity that is not centered in the United States anymore. But when we have this narrative of exceptionalism, America is blessed by God. American churches are blessed by God. Number one, it doesn't match up to the reality. God is blessing Africa uh, with church growth more than the United States. God is blessing Korea with church growth. Uh, God is blessing China with church growth more than the United States. So America is, has never been and never will be an exceptional nation before God. Uh, that is reserved for Israel and nobody else in the Bible, uh, no other place in the Bible is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we also need to recognize is that because of that exceptionalism, this belief that American, the nation is exceptional, American churches are exceptional, it leads to this triumphalism, which means that we are going to conquer the world with our exceptionalism. We are going to uh, go out and save the world, kind of the, uh, the messianic complex of American Christians. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Um, uh, I was on sabbatical a few years ago from my school. I went away for a year, did some further studies uh, down in North Carolina. I came back after a year, and I just had piles of uh, junk mail on my desk. And if you're a pastor, you know what I'm talking about. You go away for a week, all the junk mail that you get. Uh, so I had two huge piles of junk mail. I, ironically, many of them were from environmental agencies asking me to save paper. So I get all <laughs> these piles of paper, uh, and I'm trying to cut through all this junk mail. And one of them was a DVD instructional curriculum from an American-based NGO that said, the poor you will not have with you. Jesus said, the poor you will not have with you, which, of course, is not what Jesus actually said. So I looked through the material, and it was this very triumphalistic, exceptionalistic narrative coming from an American-based NGO, which said, on one hand, which I agree with, which is we need to confront the issue of extreme poverty in the world. But the second part of it was we, the exceptional, triumphalistic American church, 
needs to be the one that saves poverty in Africa. We have the education. We have the know-how. We have the resources. Now, I'm not against confronting uh, extreme poverty in the world. I'm, I'm part of an international board, an NGO myself, and I want to see extreme poverty come to an end. I don't believe that American churches are exceptional and triumphalistic to solely be the ones that save uh, the poverty in Africa. Mm -hmm. That's a triumphalism. That's the belief that we are such a unique and special people. We are especially ordained and blessed by God to go out and save the world and to do whatever it takes to save the world, to save poverty in Africa, to save the African continent. By the way, that's the reason, that point of view and that assumption, self-assumption of exceptionalism is how Africa got its problems in the first place. Because the Europeans said, those poor Africans in Africa, we got to go save them. We got to bring our democracy. We got to bring our materialism. We got to bring our uh, all the things that's going to save Africa and ended up raping the land and taking resources from all over the place. And that's why Africa is what it is because of an exceptionalistic, triumphalistic of the European colonial powers. Now we're doing that through the church. American churches are exceptional. American churches are going to be triumphalistic. So let's go save uh uh, the poor people in Africa. That's part of the problem of an exceptionalistic, triumphalistic narrative. Yeah. Well, how do you do that then without, I can I can hear me saying that, you know, what, what, let me put it this way. If I was the missionary coming yeah. back to the church asking for money, yeah, and I then tell you, I need you to give me money, but I'm probably not the best at this job. Like how, <laughs> how does a church relegate that? Or how do you, how do you, how do you measure between, you know, lip service and platitudes yeah versus, no, of course I'm the person that has to do this. This is what I'm called to do. I'm great yeah. at it because I'm called yeah. to do this. Well, I think the best missionaries and the best servants, uh, global uh, global evangelism servants in the 21st century are going to be those who know how to work on the ground with the people that they are serving. So I once heard of a horrible sermon uh, about how suburban churches can help poor inner city churches. First of all, that's just... It's just not the way that works. But that was the description, how these rich suburban churches are going to help these poor uh, urban churches. And the speaker was saying, um, we don't want to give handouts. We want to give a hand up. Now, what I said in response, or I thought in response was, actually, I don't want your hand up either. Because if you're giving me a hand out, you're at least giving me something. When you're saying I'm going to give you a hand up, what you're assuming is that you're at a better place. You're exceptional. And you're pulling me up to the place that I need to be at. Don't give me a handout. Don't give me a hand up. Give me a hand across. Reach a hand across the table and say, I might not know exactly what's needed in Africa because I'm not there. I'm at a cushy uh, executive office in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, and I don't have the know-it-all know uh, to be able to go and fix the complex problems in, in Africa. What I need to do is reach a hand across, build the relationships with those who are suffering, with those who are in pain, and say, what can we do together? So here's maybe an American solution to uh, the need for water. Uh, we ship bottled water, and we ship bottled water over there so that the 50 kids that we sponsor could have bottled water. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to drill wells. Mm -hmm. We need to drill wells and train the community to manage their own wells and to care for their own wells. These are the things that we need to do. And so that comes from reaching a hand across, not looking for a handout or a hand up. And so I think what lament does, going back to this concept of lament, what lament does is it legitimizes 
and it gives voice to those who have been previously voiceless. So if those who have been silenced have the opportunity to speak up, in all probability they'll speak out and lament because they are the marginalized suffering voices. If we hear those voices, we will do better in our outreach because we're, we're getting a sense of what it means to hear from those voices that are marginalized. Your heart beats How does a church then, so much of American capitalism, not to get political, but I don't know a better yeah. word, is, yeah. is geared around feeling good. And you'll he- and I hear people all the time, I lead worship at my church uh, most Sundays, or I help lead worship at my church most yeah. Sundays, um, and they, w- they just want to feel good. They don't really yeah. want to be pressured much. They want to leave feeling better than they left, or they want to leave feeling yeah. like they, gr- that, you know, just... I don't know. They they want to leave like their team just won the Super Bowl. And so yeah, how do yeah. you how do you preach lament and pull it off in the long term without <laughs> your church shutting its doors because people just I don't want to be depressed. Yeah, I hear that. So I was a worship leader for many years and I was a senior pastor for many years and as a church planner by the way and I write this in my book that uh the first sermon series, the full sermon series that I did of a book of the Bible was actually the book of Lamentations. Uh, which is a little bizarre if you think about it, right? So if you think about uh, the 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 church that needs to draw as many people as possible and attract many people as possible, it's obviously a church plant because you're getting off the ground, you're getting started. You want people to come to you rather than uh, scare people away or or you know depress people to the point that they don't want to come back next week. Uh, what I found fairly interesting and fascinating was that even though we did a six week sermon series on uh, on lamentations, which Many would admit, and I would admit it as even one who wrote a commentary on the book, it can be kind of a downer. I mean, mm-hmm. it talks about really, really devastating, horrible things that you don't want to talk about on a typical basis. Uh, first thing I found was that it actually did resonate with people because you can fake good feelings at the end of each service. You know what? I've, I'm a, I've been a pastor long enough. And I'm, I'm enough of a communication communicator to be able to pull that off every Sunday, to say something, sing a song, do something that makes everybody leave feeling good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a certain while, though, a pastor has to get a really hard, realistic look and say, is this real discipleship? They, the church, most members of your church have 45 minutes to an hour and a half with other Christians every day of the week. That's that Sunday service that's an hour, an hour and a half long. Um, And if every time what you're saying is affirming a sinful, dysfunctional life that they're leading, then you're not doing your job as a pastor. What you are is a cheerleader for a dysfunctional team. You are a a cheerleader. You're the press secretary to the president. Uh, You have to keep uh, affirming the lies. You have to keep dancing around the truth. Uh, So what you end up doing is you end up uh, not communicating the gospel, but communicating something that will keep your church going. Um, I think, I I hope, pastors are in this not to be popular, uh, but to actually minister to people. Sometimes that's not popular. 
Yeah. Uh, but we actually need to minister to people. And sometimes that means lament. It Sometimes it means, now I'm not saying, you know, lament every single um, day of the year, because the Bible, like I said, is 40% lament and 60% praise. But when when it's 5% lament, now you've got a problem, because you are underrepresenting a significant portion of scripture. Uh, and your discipleship is inadequate because you're discipling only in certain ways, not in other ways. And that's why I'm saying lament needs to be reintroduced, because without that lament, we're actually going to end up uh, with a dysfunctional church. You were talking about America is not even the predominant Christian nation uh, yeah. just a little bit ago. And I saw a survey or a, a research study, and I don't remember who did it. Let's say Pew Research, but it probably wasn't mm-hmm. them. Um, so I will put that caveat in there. I'm not editing that out. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but it said basically not only that, but it, it, it implied that not only is America not the most Christian of all Christian nations, Christians aren't even the majority in America anymore. Yeah, I think you're referencing a study by PRRI, uh, and it was actually a pretty more, much more specific than what you're saying, which was, I believe, if, if we're talking at the same study, it was that white Christians are no longer the majority. Mm-hmm. Now, what I wrote about in my first book in 2009, and this is almost nine, ten years ago, but it's 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 even more true now than when I wrote it, is that not only is global Christianity becoming diverse, and where the center of Christianity is now in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, in fact, the largest church in the United States doesn't even sniff the top 10 churches in the world. It doesn't even come close hmm. to being the top 10 church in the world. Uh, the largest church in the world right now is in Seoul, South Korea. It's about half a million to 750,000 people, depending on <laughs> depending on when it's raining or not. Oh I don't know why, gosh. but it fluctuates. That's how large the largest church in the world is. It's the full gospel church in Seoul, South Korea. My denomination, which is one of the fastest growing denominations in the United States right now, is about 350,000 people. So one church is larger than one of the fastest growing denominations in the United States. So we've got to understand the scale of what's happening in American Christianity compared to global Christianity. But I wrote about this in The Next Evangelicalism, which was my first book, saying, come on, folks, wake up, that American Christianity is no longer dominated by white evangelicals. We've, we've, we've always thought that white evangelicals was the majority population in America, or white Christians at least were majority population. Couple of trends. One trend is that white Christianity is in sharp decline. Uh, in the mainline church, they've been hemorrhaging membership every 10 years about 25%. Hmm. That's, that's, that's horrible. That's, you know, you're not going to survive. Uh, evangelicals, white evangelicals are also losing members in large numbers, but the only reason that white evangelicals, you don't see it in, in terms of numbers, is because there are enough immigrants, evangelicals of color, to back up the numbers of evangelicals in the United States. Is, and so is that decline, is decline. Is that decline because of, it sounds crass, is that decline because of death? Or is the church just not resupplying, not, not training a child in the way it should go? Or is it just people yeah, just checking out? It's a combination. Out? Well, it's both. It's combination. So one combination is that the more church groups are the boomers. Right, so the Boomers were very church post World War II. Uh, they are very steeped in the church. It's when kind of the height of evangelicalism, when the Boomers are kind of coming of age. Uh, but the Boomers are now in their 60s and even in their 70s, so they are dying off. They are retiring. I mean, think about two of our most prominent Boomer pastors, uh, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. You know, Hybels has already announced his retirement. Warren, I'm sure, is not too far behind. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, the builders of the mega church, the biggers, the builders of these boomer churches, uh, they're now in their 60s and 70s. So the next generation, which would kind of fill in that population gap, there's a population drop. 
right? So that's the busters. Uh, millennials, you have a little bit of an uptick, but what you're talking about is the, this glut of retirees, uh, mostly white, uh, many evangelical, but the numbers are, are kind of dropping off because as they die off, uh, the Gen Xers and the millennials, there's, uh, the numbers don't add up. But the other problem that you're alluding to is not only are the older whites dying off, but you're getting millennials leaving the church in huge, huge numbers. So you get a population drop, as in there are less white people, uh, and but now a, uh, a a demographic change in that whites are leaving the church, younger whites are leaving the church. And the only reason these numbers are relatively stable is because you had immigrants coming into the church. You have uh, African-American churches growing, Asian-American communities growing, Spanish-speaking congregations flourishing. Without these immigrant churches, um, Christianity would be kind of on its last breath. And the only reason Christianity is surviving into the 21st century in America uh, is because of these non-white churches. Mm -hmm. We would probably be similar or close to the numbers you're seeing in Europe right now, where you see this ridiculous drop-off in church attendance uh, within a generation. And you're seeing that in the majority white population, but you're not seeing that in the immigrant churches, which, which is why it's, to me, uh, this con and I don't know if you want to go down this right, but this conversation about you know slowing down immigration mm -hmm. for white Christians that is the last thing you should be asking for because without this influx of immigrants the church will die in the United States. Immigrants are saving the church in America, and that's why it's it's so stunning that boomer white boomer Americans are the ones who are saying we don't want immigrants when actually without immigrants the church in America will die. So. The question I would ask for white boomer Christians, evangelicals, is do you care more about the church or do you care more about America? Yeah. So you want to preserve America, make America great again. In the process of doing that, you're going to destroy the church. Yeah. So let's, I, I agree with all of that, um, and I am a banker by profession. And just a side note, don't really want to discuss it. I don't see a way that the country can survive with our yeah. entitlements without immigrants oh, being allowed work. to come yeah. and pay for it because when people don't retire and you have a well-educated person working at Starbucks after college paying on debt. Right. He, there's no way for a person to pay into the system at $15 an hour, even the FICA taxes to pay for it. But I could talk banking all day. I won't, I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. Um, well, but yeah, the, the math, concepts, the math works. Does it apply to, does that apply to the church? Right. So I'm with you. I mean, I've been, I don't, I'm not a numbers cruncher on this, but I can just, you know, my sociology work, I've noticing, wait, you got the boomers who are retiring in huge numbers, population glut. They're living 20, 30 years past retirement. Mm -hmm. They don't have a good sense to die at 70. They're living to 80, 90 years Selfish. old. Selfish. So now, <laughs> so now you've got people on in Social Security for 25 years. You have a population bust. The Gen Xers can't pay for We're not, hey, you and I, hey, we're Xers, right? We don't have, we're not making enough to pay for them. Not, there's not enough of us to pay for, the, for our, our parents' retirement. And our kids, they're, with their Starbucks jobs, they're not going to pay for uh, mm -hmm. our, our parents' retirement. So the only way you can actually pay for that is actually bringing in people who have fake social security numbers, who will pay social security taxes, but never take any of that out, who are pumping money into the system mm -hmm. and paying for, now what I'm saying is take that same parallel and think about the church. The boomers are dying off, they're retiring, they're, you know, that's why the churches in Arizona and Florida are, are growing because that's where all the boomers are moving to. Busters are too small to take over the boomer churches. Uh, that's why churches like Crystal Cathedral is shutting down. A uh, huge mega church for the boomers. They shut down. They sold their building to a Catholic 
uh, Spanish-speaking congregation. Hmm. So that's kind of the trend going forward. You're going to have these boomer churches where the busters can't fill in the seats and the millennials are gone. They don't, they're not in church anymore. The only way to keep these churches going is if you have immigrant ethnic minority churches, multi-ethnic churches take over these white boomer churches. I think, and, I, and I'm going to lobby for this right now, I don't know what your next book will be after the one that, that recently came out, um, but I think it should be called Bustas, and you should you yeah. should write an entire book specifically about that, and maybe get a licensing agreement from Fast and Furious or whatever. Um, so, so building off, I tried not to get too political, but I don't see how not to, and so how, how do I say this? I don't see how the last presidential election did not break the word evangelical. You have, uh, on one hand, the church saying, no, this is a man God ordained, but it's fine that he's a liar. It's fine how he treats women, even though I wouldn't let him date my daughter. Uh, yeah. It's it, yeah, pastors endorsing, well, it's he's the president, but the rest of you shouldn't really get around with prostitutes. So how is how is how is the current president disrupting the church as we know it and then how do we address it lament about it and and move yeah. forward without because it's it's going to happen for three more years so yeah it, it, if we wait hopefully. three years those those <laughs> drastic drop-offs like people of my generation i just don't have time for that i don't yeah. want to argue every day yeah yeah well the word evangelical is clearly in trouble uh and some of that is we allowed a small subset of the evangelical population to define that word for us. So I, I consider myself an evangelical, and I'm, I'm debating now whether I turn in my card or not and you know, just disavow that whole movement or not. Uh, and I've written a lot about evangelicalism. I mean, that's kind of my, my, one of my books. It's called Next Evangelicalism. My, uh, another project I have is looking at black evangelicalism in the 1960s and 70s. So I've written a lot and know about the history of, black, uh, of evangelicalism. Um, if, as I had written nine years ago, evangelicalism was defined more as a theological ecclesial movement that had kind of some very strong, important theological foundations, such as a high view of scripture, high view of who Jesus is, an active type of faith, uh, a concern for uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the lost in the world, and in all forms, whether that's, you know. So those kinds of foundational theological ecclesial uh, factors drew me to evangelicalism. I love an active faith. I love the, 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 uh, uh, the, the centrality of scripture. These are the things that make me an evangelical. But over the last 40 plus years, especially with the rise of the religious right, evangelicalism is now first a sociological definition and now almost purely a political definition that's tied into sociology. Uh, so uh, we see this because the president and the election is a clear marker of that. So um, evangelical leaders getting behind someone who clearly is not an evangelical. I don't know how much mental gymnastics you have to do to mm. even come close to defining this person as an evangelical. And if you do that, you lose your witness altogether. And mm -hmm. the whole thing about him sleeping with a porn star and then an evangelical pastor actually saying this is okay. I mean, this is insane. This is how crazy this world has gotten where an evangelical pastor gets on Fox News and defends the president's actions of immorality. Um, so what we're talking about is a label that has become so politicized, it has nothing to do with the Christian faith. Uh, so if it were about the Christian faith, even if you didn't agree with his, uh, with his policy, you could still affirm, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, let me go the other way. Even if you disagree, if you didn't agree with his policy, you still can't agree with his lifestyle. And so what we're ending up with is this 
uh, our evangelical identity is so politicized that many of us who don't fall into that political sphere are saying it, it may be too late. Uh, I'm kind of in the middle right now because if evangelicals of color uh, who do hang on to the spiritual and the ecclesial reasons for our faith and prioritize that, many of us, not all of us, but many of us, then that is what could be redemptive uh, versus what is now defined as evangelical right now. That word might be difficult. I'll give you one more thing about the, about abandoning that term so easily. And this is my concern about abandoning the term. I was at a conference with the Native American uh, theologians a few years ago, and a, a white academic said, maybe it's time for us to abandon the word Christian because there's so much negative connotations. Do we just abandon that word altogether and say, you know, find a new word or find a different way to describe ourselves. We don't talk about ourselves as Christian anymore. Native elder stood up and he says, in, his, in my words, his description, this is a cop-out because once you abandon that word, you are walking away from its history, both the good and the bad. And by walking away from the negative history, you are now absolving yourself of the responsibility of the negative connotations of the word. So I would actually challenge white evangelicals not to abandon the word evangelical, but you've got to take responsibility for what the misuse of that word has led to. Um, the terrible anti-evangelistic witness that word has now become. Um, you've got to take responsibility for that. And so to walk away from it so easily is actually an expression of privilege rather than being able to say, this is a problem. And now I've got to confront and address that problem. Yeah, you got to stay on the same football field. You can't just peace yeah. out and go play soccer because you're not happy with what the score is. <laughs> exactly. So to, to call a church to own that and to try to redefine the word evangelical, it's going to require justice. And so what should that look like for yeah. our communities? Yeah, I mean, uh, I go back to the, the whole lament piece where lament is when you hear uh, the voice of the poor and the marginalized. And again, if you think of the word evangelical, you don't think of people who care about the poor um, the downtrodden, uh, the immigrants, the refugees. I mean, sadly, that name has taken on that negative connotation. Uh, but what would it mean for white evangelical churches to take a stand against racism and mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, uh, against ICE raids, against, um, against the treatment of refugees, against the demonization of, of, uh, of, of Islam, all of these things which are horrible negative witnesses to the gospel. Uh, what would it mean for the, the white evangelical church to actually demonstrate the gospel and not just proclaim it? Mm. I mean, we got, we, got, we got volumes of volumes of books that talk about the proclamation of the gospel. We are taught how to do the four spiritual laws, how to do the bridge illustrations, the Romans way. We've got, we've got chapter after chapter on how to evangelize in words and in proclamation. 
most churches right now can do that well, or at least claim to do that well, and have zero going for them when it comes to the demonstration of the gospel. So don't tell me you're going to evangelize to a Muslim in Syria when you told that very person not to come to your country and be your neighbor. Yeah. So yeah, you can talk all you want about the love of Christ, but if you are not demonstrating the love of Christ, then you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Mm. And so what I think is the problem with our evangelism is that it is so devoid of justice that it has actually become a counterproductive witness. Yeah. Well, I can tell you when, and I found that recently, the more that I do episodes of this show and the further I get to a, I don't know, muddy version of whatever I was as a Christian, yeah. I'm, I'm much more willing to be uh, graceful when I, yeah. when I talk with people I don't agree with. Uh, which I think is good, but I, I also then just get accused of not standing for anything. But I do. I just usually <laughs> don't tell people what I stand for because I I've realized they don't really want to know. Yeah, I've I've found that the when you try to say things to people that way, that they just get so angry and quick to defend whatever their constitutional right is to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, and yeah, and and they for i think they they become a christian after they become an american or a christian after they become a russian or a christian after they become a canadian <laughs> or or whatever the country yeah. is so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I do have a question it's a hypothetical i asked it on on our facebook page not long ago is america the the new babylon <laughs> well uh let's go to the book of revelation where um the church is roundly condemned uh, and the leaders of the church are soundly condemned by God um, for doing what? For having committed harlotry and prostitution uh, with Babylon. And uh, there is a weeping and gnashing of teeth as Babylon falls. Uh, and there is a call to come out of Babylon. I, I think there are multiple Babylons. I would say that for a number of people in our country right now who identify as evangelical, America is clearly one of those Babylons mm. because there has been, I think, among some white evangelical leaders, I'll put it blunt, prostitution with the nation of America. Um, you have sold your soul. You have sold your integrity. You have sold your uh, value system for a few pieces of silver. For, uh, for a seat at the table. Um, what you've done is committed prostitution with Babylon uh, because Babylon is what uh, anything that replaces God. Uh, and what, what many white evangelicals have done is elevated Babylon above Jerusalem and elevated Babylon above, uh, above God, above the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so when I think of when the, the end comes and Jesus establishes his reign, will there be white American evangelicals who are weeping and gnashing their teeth because Babylon has fallen? I would say, based upon the evidence I've seen, yes, there will be, mm. because Babylon, America has become a Babylon, that when it falls, people will weep and gnash their teeth. Sure. Yeah, I know we're running short on time, so I, d I have two final questions, and one will be sure. much more... Much more um fun i hope than some of the others <laughs> so i am guessing as 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 any theologian has you, you must have certain people in church history that you really like and and i know that you were recently entered into a march madness bracket <laughs> against against theologians of time immemorial and so my question is do you do you now still like the same people that you used to cuz from what i understand you were you didn't 
You didn't bust any brackets. Yeah, no, I got trounced in the first round. First, uh, first of all, I'm kind of like I don't know St. Mary's Catholic school for girls. I mean, if I got invited to the big <laughs> dance, I mean, I would be stunned and say, "Hey, how did I end up here?" It's, a, it's an I'm honor. Playing, yeah, I'm playing Kentucky, <laughs> Kansas, and Duke, and I, you know, we've got we've got St. Mary's Catholic school for girls. <laughs> so to be even on that list of the 64 people that are worthy of this tournament, I, I just found amusing and and. Uh, uh, very, yeah, very amusing. And I went up against St. Athanasius and got trounced. It was, you know, a 90, you know, by basketball score, it was like a 90 to 20 victory by St. Athanasius over me. Um, I thought it was really, really amusing what they did. Now, I was thrilled that uh, two of my uh, faculty advisors were also on the list. And Emmanuel Katongale actually made it out of the first round. Mm. So good for Emmanuel. He was my advisor down at Duke. He's now at Notre Dame. And Willie Jennings, who was also one of my advisors down at Duke, he's now at Yale, was also in in the bracket. Uh, so that, that makes me feel good that I learned not only from these others through books, but I also learned directly from uh, two of the, the finest theologians in our time period, which is Emmanuel Katongle and uh, Willie Jennings. So I would say that right now, I would uh, still give very high props to their influence as kind of living theologians who are continuing to write and do work that is phenomenal, uh, challenges the church. So much of my uh, theological formation comes from them. So uh, yeah, I'm rooting for them. I'm hoping they get out to, of the first. To, to invert that, I, I assume you no longer allow any coursework to be related to Athanasius at all. It's, it's, <laughs> That's right. He's it's, off the, off thrown, the syllabus. Thrown out, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm bitter. I'm yeah, bitter he he is. We don't even speak his name anymore. That's so, right. Um, shout out name. <laughs> and yeah. Um. So so then, uh, in closing, I know you have many works coming out over the next little bit. So where would you point people to get involved as they seek to, uh, not to steal from Micah six eight, just do justice, like as they seek yeah. to do this. So yeah, where would you point people to either engage with yourself, uh, yeah. works that they can dig into, ministries yeah. that they should support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the, the best uh, uh, lessons and teachings I heard on uh, engaging in works of justice uh, was my mentor at uh, Gordon Conwell out in Villafanye. And he talks about kind of a three stage process. One is understanding the context. Second is uh, a theology that speaks to that context. And then third is actually thinking of methods of confrontation. Uh, so I, I would take that kind of approach to say uh, maybe the first step is to know the world we're living in and see what the problems are. Uh, I don't want people to misdiagnose and say, hey, I'm going to go and solve this problem. And it turns out that's not a problem either. You can't you can solve or a problem that's not even there. Uh, so I call that clarif- uh, or uh, Villafanye and uh, Holland and Henry call this clarification understanding the context. So I would just say, do the research, know what's going on in the world around you. If you want one of my books that might help you do that, The Next Evangelicalism on University Press might be a good starting point to understand the world that we're living in. The second, in terms of theological concept, I would recommend my book, Prophetic Lament, which talks about the theology of lament as a necessary theological corrective to the world that we're living in. And in terms of confrontation, there's a number of different books that you can look at. A lot of confrontation, though, I think is not so much coming from books, it's coming from experience and the integration of the social reality you're in, as well as the theological concepts you're engaging in. Uh, the book that Mark and I are working on, tentatively titled Truth Be Told, will be also out on InnoVarsity Press, uh, will be coming out uh, sometime next year. Uh, and so look for that. Uh, and then the next book after that will be my uh, dissertation that will be published um, uh, on Black Evangelicalism. Black Evangelicals. Are you allowed to talk about Black Evangelicals? 
<laughs> yeah, uh, so I, it's more of a historical look, and there's kind of modern expressions of it, and uh, I can I can get into that. But more, it's in the '60s and '70s, at kind of the when the the current evangelical movement was coming into the forefront, uh, and you had the Billy Grahams and the you know Chuck Colsons and kind of these evangelical leaders coming up to the front. Um, there was a significant group of Black evangelicals who were. Uh, uh, who were theologically lined up almost exactly with where white evangelicals were, but on certain social issues like race and poverty and economic just, uh, justice and injustice issues, they didn't quite line up, and many of them were were not allowed to be in evangelical movement in the evangelical movement. So I kind of questioned that and what happened there, nice. and maybe some lessons that we can learn for the 21st century. Nice. Well, that sounds like then I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get you on air. I'm gonna have to have you back on. We'll discuss that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, Get both Mark and I when that book comes out. That'll be an incentive for us to get that book done. Everything else is not enough of an incentive. The money. (laughs) I would think I would think money would do it. So, well, thank you, thank you again for your time, Professor. I've 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 enjoyed this. All right, good to talk to Music from today's show is used with permission from the album Topography by Brett Lee Miller. You can connect with Brett at brettleemiller.com. You can find all the links to Brett in the show notes, as well as you will see him featured on the Spotify playlist entitled Can I Say This at Church? We'll talk to you next time. You swear, even when the world is too much to be.